Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson, and this is a continuation of my series on David Graeber's debt. Here today to discuss some of the things that come up in Chapter 2 is Corey Doctorow. That conversation is after the music. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, Cory Doctorow. We are here to talk about David Graeber's debt. Yeah, uh, poor David Graeber, uh, rest in power. Uh, he's sorely missed. I, I last um, spoke with him just a couple of weeks before he died. We did a live cast together, and he was full of beans and uh, did not seem poorly at all. My understanding is that it happened very quickly. Uh, and maybe that he didn't suffer very much, but boy, did we lose uh, an important thinker and just a great all-round guy, if a very grumpy and contentious <laughs> and combative guy, uh, when we lost him. Yeah, I, you know, I did not, I did not have the pleasure of, of getting to know him. And I have, you know, based this podcast around his ideas. And it seems like it's hard for me to have someone on the show who doesn't say, oh, yeah, David, I ran into him at such and such, um, but I was just, I was just in rural South Carolina, not hanging out mm. with David Graeber. So it goes. Well, I was his interlocutor on the, his LA stop on the bullshit jobs tour, and we had a great conversation on stage and a nice chat afterwards. So let's start. So we talked a little bit about debt last time you were on the show. So the listeners, I don't think need to hear the story of how you discovered debt. I think we discussed Charlie Strauss, right? If I have that name right. Um, but mm -hmm. we can talk. Well, I, I really actually heard about him through Joe Walton. Right. But it was through a Joe Walton article about why Charlie and my editor, who's also her editor, who's also Charlie's editor, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, and why so many other people were talking about debt. Uh, and how it had just come kind of roaring into uh, a corner of science fiction, fandom, and writerdom uh, as an important book about... I, so I, I think what makes it so important, uh, along with uh, Dawn of Everything, is that it really um, does what science fiction does best. Uh, science fiction, I think, gets a, a false reputation as a predictive literature, which is a very boring thing. Um, if prediction is possible, then human agency doesn't matter because you can predict what's going to happen and we're just pawns of destiny. And I think what science fiction does is it contests. Uh, it says, you know, in contrast to Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. It says there's always alternatives. Nothing about this is foreordained. Um, I think it was Heinlein who said all laws are local and no one knows how local their laws are, uh, which, you know, given the political differences between, you know, Heinlein and Graeber, it tells you just how useful and powerful a concept this idea of contestation is. Um, and so, you know, having of all of us heard the story of money arising spontaneously from people who wanted to make change for goats with chickens and and then learning <laughs> so much more about it right about how money is um socially embedded how it emerges from states how it has precursors that look like money but aren't how barter isn't what we think of um 
you know, it's it's really um, it really m- makes you do the science fiction exercise of saying not just like what if a gadget could do a thing, but what if we organize the social structures uh, of our society radically differently with or without the help of a gadget? Yeah, and <clears throat> excuse me, this is a little bit what we talked about um, with uh, Pirate Enlightenment, in that that's also in some ways a that's also in some ways a science fictional work and that it's like imagine the world was organized differently dawn of everything does this as well but it was mm-hmm. uh, but it was true and and debt mm-hmm. is sort of the story not of what the world would be like if it was organized differently but the story of how the world got organized i mean this is kind of one of the central claims of the book that's why it's called the first 5000 years is that right. roughly 5000 years ago the state and the market came together to create, we can call it modernity if we want to, you know, to create this, this thing that was different. We can call, you know, this modernity started in 1800 or negative 3000. And we've been mm-hmm. told there's no alternatives to it, which is the first point. And the second point is we've been told there's no alternatives to it because it's so efficient that's just how things work. This is the field of economics. And it turns out if you look at the root of the field of economics, there's just a completely fucking bullshit made up story explaining why we can't imagine right. different worlds. But they just made up this world. Right. I would say actually as a slight gloss on that, that the story uh, of economics and money, the thing that makes it so hegemonic is that not just that it purports that this is the best way of organizing it, but that it's like the natural mm. way of organizing it or even the inevitable yeah. way of organizing it. Start from any point on the map, walk in any direction, and you will always end up here, right? And it's because of our biology and our human nature and our and and things about efficiency and things about um, confluence of interest and so on and so on and so on. And, and, you know, I think that that's, um, that that's what David challenges in this book, right, is it, it, by, by telling the story of how we did it in other ways. And I think that even the most um, kind of Ayn Rand-pilled weirdo w- would say, oh, maybe someone did it a different way at some point, but it sucked and it didn't <laughs> last, right? And to have David say, actually, like, here's like, dozens if not hundreds of different times it was tried in different ways many of them stable over extremely long time periods and used to organize very large groups of people and indeed many of the success stories claimed for uh markets when you look closely at them aren't markets so um you know i was just i was just uh, on catalina island uh, which is this beautiful island here in southern california uh my not my next novel but the one after that is set there and i was i went back to kind of make sure i got all the details right and catalina was home to the tongva people and it has this um soapstone that's very good for working into what uh archaeologists call oyas which are these pots that um are stable at high temperatures and so you can use them as cooking pots they don't crack and oyas have been found up and down the americas uh, thousands and thousands of miles away and the story of how the Oyas get from here to there, that has been told historically, as well as other trade goods, which, you know, the name tells you it, right? <laughs> trade goods, right? That we find elsewhere is is that um, you basically had like indigenous madmen who, you know, had a little marketing firm that figured out how to, how to, how to sell Oyas to the Toltecs 
and uh, and like sent out sales agents and, you know, like like, uh, you know, and, and ran basically a distributed indigenous Walmart uh, to, to carry these things. Right. And and that's just like not how it worked. It was just organized in like a completely different way. It was, you know, networks of favors. It was potlatch, um, you know, in, in Rise of Everything uh, or Dawn of Everything. Rather, we, we get um, stories of how a lot of what we think of as trade goods were actually uh, gambled away by women who would organize these giant <laughs> regional women's gambling uh, festivals where they would gamble with the with the beautiful uh, decorative and useful artifacts of their uh, group's manufacture. And it was a kind of joyous exchange, uh, but also like, you know, extremely familiar to anyone who's like a Jewish or Chinese grandmother spent a lot of time playing Mahjong, you know, uh, and, and, and like, it's just such a, when you, when you get there, right. When you say, oh, maybe it could be a different way. Everything falls apart. Like everything that you think of as being just like inevitable as opposed to a default, as opposed to inertial, uh, suddenly is up for question. You know, I had, a the most anarchist person I ever knew uh, was my old roommate, Eric Stewart, who um, founded a thing called Anarchist U, which was a network of about 80 distributed um, uh, sort of peer group uh, scholarly pursuits where you would put a, you'd propose a course, you'd put a, a 10 class syllabus on a wiki. The students would edit it with the proposed instructor. And once you all agreed, then the instructor would teach it somewhere in 10 weekly sessions. And his nickname was Possum Man for complicated reasons. It was like a superhero he drew when he was a kid. And Possum, um, just like he challenged everything. Like not in a kind of a contrarian way, but like, I, you know, he spent like years wearing this one sweater inside out. And, and we were roommates. And I was like, why are you wearing that sweater inside out? You know it's inside out, right? And he was like, yeah, but look, here's the pattern on the inside, right? And it's got all of these irregular asymmetrical elements where the weaving machine sort of dived from one part of the textile to another to restart a, a decorative element for the front. And it is asymmetrical. It is complicated. It's kind of mathematically chewy, right? And here on the inverse is the very regular, boring <laughs> interior, uh, uh, exterior so I wear it inside out in the same way that, you know, I just I have this like framework repairable laptop. And one of the easiest things to swap on it is the bezel that goes around the screen. And they've just shipped um, a, a transparent one. So you can see the electronics behind the bezel. And like I totally get why you would want a clear bezel around your screen. And it's the same reason you want an inside out sweater. And we used to joke that like someday Possum was going to come out of his room with his underwear on his head. <laughs> And we go like, why are you wearing your underwear on your head, Possum? And he would say, well, like, I thought about it. It keeps my head warm. It keeps my ears uncovered so that I can, you know, hear if someone's trying to talk to me. Um, it's much cheaper than a hat. And, and you know, I have to launder it anyway. And so, yeah, I'm going to wear my underwear on my head from now on. And, like, that is really the kind of almost vertiginous uh, uh, openness that occurs before you. In that moment where um, you say, oh, all these things that I thought could be no other way or that would be if they were any other way would be wildly inefficient and clumsy or whatever. And you realize, actually, it's entirely contingent. There's there's 
nothing about it that makes this ideal or permanent. It's just path dependent. There, there's, you know, it's 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 a superstition masquerading as a um, uh, a, a best of breed solution, evidence based <laughs> solution. Yeah, I wanna I wanna pick up some thoughts about science fiction writers and the relationship between science fiction writers and economists. But before I get there, I just want to say, you know, I have small children, four and six, and they also will wear underwear on their head. And to sure. a, yeah. a huge part of your job as a parent is when kids do stuff that's fun and different is to be like, no, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Because other yeah. people will be mean to you and your life will be horrible if you are who you are. And that's like, that's like your job as a parent. And it's yeah. like, why? like I don't, I don't want, terrible. I don't want that. I want yeah. my kids to be able to do whatever they want to do. And God, would the world be so much more interesting and probably more efficient. God damn it. Although not that, I, not that that's my key value. If people right. were themselves more and we're just, we just squelch that relentlessly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's entirely right. I think that's that's absolutely right. So let me go. You know, I was thinking of um, one of the pieces you wrote relatively recently in the last few months about the the science fictional power of the spreadsheet, which is just the idea that yeah. the, the spreadsheet is a is a model of of the universe, and you know you can change things in it, and then you get a whole you get a whole different world. And so it does seem that economists love the imaginary they love models the entire genre of economics i take to be a, a, a bunch of fantasy land stuff the example i was thinking about just recently is you know paul krugman won the nobel prize for he won i guess like 10 or 15 years ago for work that he did like 30 years ago and the thing that he won the nobel prize for is no one could understand why that say like bmw and mercedes-benz both existed because if you go all the way back to like ricardo ricardo would say you know countries should trade with one another and so like there shouldn't be a mercedes and a bmw it should just be just one and then there also shouldn't be lexus because japan should just import mercedes's and then krugman said what if we change the model to suggest that people actually like different things and that won him the Nobel Prize. Like that's literally, <laughs> yeah, that's, sure, that's sure. like it's called like diversifying outputs or something like that. And it's like right. Jesus Christ! Everyone knows that some people like different cars from other people, but you you built a science fiction universe in which everyone liked the same car, and then someone won the Nobel Prize for suggesting that people might like different cars. This is, they're so far behind the science fiction writers in their imaginary, and yet they're running society. Well, I think that, you know, specifically with spreadsheets, there's two things that can trip you up. So um, a spreadsheet, you know, necessarily simplifies things. There's nothing wrong with simplifying things in order to, to... you know, study them or think about them or imagine a contrafactual. You know, I'm planning a Kickstarter right now. I have a spreadsheet. It, It's like, how much am I going to send on postage? And how much am I going to spend on payment processing? And just, you know, a bunch of stuff. And I got a bunch of boxes. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to assume that X thousand people in Germany are going to buy this book. And so uh, if I do that and then I find this German wholesaler and then I get this quantity break, what is my margin, right? And And... You know, I can sit there all day and I could just be wrong, <laughs> right? I could just be wrong. I could, I could, I, 
in fact, remitted a payment to one of my publishers because I sell um, ebooks off my website and then I pay my publishers. I had a spreadsheet formula error. Hmm. It turned out I owed them, you know, $2,000 more than I thought they, I owed them. And I had to pay them last night. Um, so I could be wrong. I could make an error in the math. There's famous examples of big, important academic economic work yeah. where literally like yeah. they flipped a sign, right? And I know. Minus, minus X instead of times minus one instead of plus, times plus one or something. And just the whole, like the effect just disappears. Uh, and that's, you know, you can be diligent and careful and try to avoid that. But then the other thing that can go wrong is when you forget what assumptions went into the box, mm. right? So the box can be correct, but you can forget where you simplified and where you didn't. You can forget which parts are approximations and which parts are reflective of ground truth. And when that happens, right, when you forget which parts are hypothetical and which parts are grounded in sort of repeatable uh, phenomena, then you can go really, really wrong, right? Like if you say, you know, here's a trenchant example from David's life, right? If you say... Um, I am going to assume that all of the assets in this complex derivative are fully hedged. And then I'm just going to say that that is the case, right? Stipulate that all the assets in this, uh, because of the asset mix, all the assets in this CDO are fully hedged and um, uh, that uh, they're not correlated. So that <laughs> if one goes away, they won't all go bust. Uh, and you forget that that was just an assumption. You forget that was a kind of a, what if we could have a mix of assets that had these two characteristics, then what safe things could we do financially, right? Um, and you forget that this was a what if, and you, you, you think that what you've written in the spreadsheet or what someone downstream of you working with your spreadsheet thinks that you put in the spreadsheet is, um, we have you know, a fully hedged, non-correlated asset mix like uh, in this box, this is a this is a standard unit of fully hedged non-correlated assets, and we have um, n standard units. Now do some work on them, do some math on them, apportion them, sell them, buy them, group them, break them apart, whatever. And you forget that it was an assumption, right? And then it turns out, oh shit, oh shit, everything in this box is correlated, and none of it is hedged. And if any of it goes <laughs> under, it all implodes. And then you get the 2008 crisis and you get, you get, you know, uh, Occupy Wall Street and you get David's contribution to we are the 99%. And this, this, you know, idea that, um, you know, this idea all starts with just the very normal human thing of forgetting which things were sturdy and which things were hypothetical. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And just to continue, Graeber says that one of the reasons, one of the inspirations for writing debt was when that collapse happens. I mean, so you and I obviously are old enough to remember the cult of Alan Greenspan and the, the belief that just like there was someone in charge who was always going to make the right decision. I mean, I can almost can't believe it now, but I, I remember the 90s. And it was just like, if you were ever like, hey, does Greenspan really know what he's doing? I should. I'm going to skip explaining who Greenspan is. You can Google Greenspan if you were if you sure. were born after the year of 1995. He was an evil sorcerer that Bill Clinton relied yes, on. Yes, exactly. Um, you don't mean Larry Summers, anyway. Um, oh, that too. No, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So Graver said, you know, it became obvious, and I guess we all should have known this, but it was really obvious after 2008 was if you said if you said, you know what, I think this evil sorcerer doesn't know what he's doing 
that was a laughable claim. It was a laughable claim right. that he was clueless. And then post-2008, it becomes a laughable claim that the people running the world economy knew what they were doing. And we had built the last 40 years of our existence on the idea that those people knew what they were doing. And they didn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it is... Um... I mean, it's a neat example of the Overton window, right? What what things can be questioned or debated, you know, in the same way that like, you know, an economist may say assume a fully hedged asset or a, or a, a dealer broker may say imagine a fully hedged asset. A critic might say imagine an incompetent central banker today. <laughs> Whereas before, that was like, imagine gravity is only half of Earth's yeah. gravity, but we're still on Earth. You know, what, what kind of, uh, what kind of um, mining operations or aerospace could we do if we could cut gravity in half? It's, you know, a weird thought experiment, but it's, it's hardly anything that you need to spend any serious thought to. Yeah, you would. Uh, that's, that's absolutely right. And you you were not you were not allowed to voice this i'm gonna see if i can find this real quick i don't want to waste too much of our time because i forgot to prep this but i'm uh reading john ruskin's famous unto this last which is his his thing about um economics and i marked it yeah and he says you know uh I neither impugn nor doubt the conclusion of the science of political economy if its terms are accepted. I am simply uninterested in them as I should be in those of a science of gymnastics which assumed that men had no skeletons. And that's the that's the exact <laughs> point you're making about and you yeah. know he says the field of economics suggests all of these things and he just lays out basically what Mill and Ricardo said and he says and since this is a fantasy, I mean it sounds like Graeber, I'm not interested in it exactly like we wouldn't be interested in mining in a world that had half the, the the gravity how did how did this happen i mean all models are useful all models are wrong some models are useful yeah and i like i am here for weird thought experiments and and so this is why i was at pains to distinguish the problem of making a bad assumption from the problem of forgetting when you just made an assumption, mm. right? When you just as a matter of intellectual inquiry or, or experimentation or to simplify things, to think about them better, uh, just just um, elided some complexity. And there's a whole area, it, you know, if you ever want us to, to get into some really interesting and in a way that I can't quite define anarchist math, check out Fermi approximation as in Enrico Fermi which is just this thing where if you can kind of guess within an order of magnitude how some difficult thing difficult to solve thing is made up of made up you can kind of like build up these guesses into some that's actually often surprisingly accurate randall monroe from xkcd mm. has done this with like how much paint do you need to cover the world? And without doing any research at all, he just does a series of Fermi approximations, which he then goes back and researches to evaluate them. And like, I'm all for it, right? <laughs> but like the point is that he makes these approximations, he does this back of the envelope calculation. And then before he ever relies on them, he goes off and he does some counting because it's not, it's an adjunct to uh, looking at the real world, not a substitute for it. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to touch now on something else that you brought up, you know, thinking about the Overton 
window. So something that I, I was just discussing in an episode that I recorded that'll come out later than this is the the reaction to this book, especially on this um crooked timber seminar where just Oh yeah. Yeah. I was just rereading this. Yes, me too. And you know, there those guys are pals of mine and I have all the time in the world for Henry Farrell. And I was I was rereading what Henry had written and also rereading what David wrote in response. And it is a boy that's a like a knockdown, drag out, uh, serious, you know, Barney. And um, like Henry, I don't know if you saw that Henry just wrote a piece about it because it was Crooked Timber's 20th anniversary. No, I, I, and, I had no idea. Oh, yeah, you should go read I, it. I, will, de- I where, will go right away. Well, where he cops to like basically overgeneralizing, being imprecise and so on. But then drills down into like his core point and makes a point that is pretty reasonable, I think. And, uh, you know, David's not around to um, reevaluate his own remarks at the time. Rereading David's remarks, I was like, oh, my God, this has got the kind of long windedness of someone who has been pricked at their conscience Hmm. right like i think that that you know so henry you know just to kind of summarize it henry says there's a lot in this book to like and there's a lot that i agree with uh and even the parts that i don't agree with i think are really smart and good however um there are these very contentious speculative claims that david makes uh and Whereas many of the other claims are are well sourced, these ones are more thinly sourced, and I think he's basically trying to palm a card. That's mm. that's more or less what he says. And judging from David's reaction, I, it feels like he has uh, pricked David in the place that he worries about. Right? He, that 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 you know, doing a little armchair psychology with someone who I had a. A friendly social relationship with but wasn't a dear friend of and who I admired greatly it feels like David worried that uh, from that response it feels like David worried that people secretly thought that he was a bullshit artist yeah and uh and that he was just making shit up that this this exercise of like sort of counter hegemonic narrative could easily veer into um making shit up and that he worried that people thought that that's what he was practicing. And when Henry backhandedly accused him of it, uh, his response was so intense that, you know, it's for trendy or, or cliche to use the word triggered. But it feels like something got triggered there, like some anxiety. I know what my anxieties are, and I can feel myself getting literally hot under the collar, flushed, and, you know, my pulse accelerating when some stranger on Twitter with 11 followers... Yeah hits me in those spots right and uh not that there's anything wrong with having 11 followers but it it in terms of just in terms of like any reputational harm or embarrassment <laughs> i might experience if only 11 people see this and six of them are bots it's hardly going to change how the world views me but i know when it when it touches me like that it gets to me so it feels like that's where he was at i don't know the other scholar who was involved that that um he's he uh goes after the one who who talked about his work on twitter who again like twitter's such a mess right now it's very hard to go back and inspect the record but from what i can tell even that criticism was somewhat mild i mean it may have been unfair but it wasn't vicious and david's response that you know there there are 
doing this move where they discredit me yeah. and it's part of like this game where nobody wants to engage with the ideas they just discredit you by imputing things to you that you never said and blah 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 and i i i mean it's possible for people who to merely misunderstand or misinterpret you and and do a thing that sounds that way and again i don't know this other academic so maybe he's just a villain but you know Henry is not merely like a pal of mine. He is, um, he's someone who's been on the right side of so many, many fights. I mean, he's a collaborator of Aaron Swartz's speaking of dear departed mm. people. And, you know, he, he, I just, I just don't think that he did it, whatever he did, that he did maliciously. And in light of his recent, uh, apo- uh, you know, apology reconsideration, I think that it's fair to say that, um, you know, he, got out over his skis and that uh he kicked off something that he regrets i, w- I wish i'd brought this up earlier because we could talk about this for hours let me but let me put my my spin on it so first of all i think i think that's right in terms of it obviously touched a nerve with graber whether whether i think he's a bullshit artist or not so i was reading a a, a brad DeLong blog post about debt recently where he's just like yeah graver got this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and he got everything wrong and i don't know Corey. this is i mean this is actually really important to me i'm gonna speak for a little bit longer than i normally do and bring it back around to you so good luck to you um it you know it 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 keeps me up at night when i read something like that brad's a smart guy and uh and knows a lot and has read a lot of stuff and i i read that and he's like yeah this is just full of shit it's just some uh anthropological con artist who doesn't know anything and because of just like the hold that authority and prestige and power has and brad has all those things and i loathe all of those things but was obviously raised in a world in which those things are valued i'm like oh no did i did i get this wrong is it all wrong is it all wrong and then i remember reading brad's book and finding huge errors in it massive errors in it and i remember that it's not that brad is uniquely bad there's lots of great stuff in his book as well it was an interesting book not as good as debt but that's just the that's just how it is and when when brad said that you know he was wrong i just thought what am i what am i doing why am i bucking the establishment these guys are smart and they know what they're talking about and i if i were graber who was literally trying to bring about world historical change i would be terrified i mean maybe that i was a bullshit artist but more that just like i felt like i was on to something and what if i wasn't the other thing i will say is i feel like this a lot Corey. i mean i'm i'm an academic i am in you know whatever you want to call them like progressive intellectual circles that don't take anarchism seriously and barely barely take socialism seriously i i stay up at night thinking why is everything i think different from all of the really smart people with the same degree as me why why am i wrong and corey one of the things that keeps me going is your newsletters um particular ah. no i'm serious particularly recently one about uh you know the the, the swivel-eyed loons are are often right or something like that or, or they have a point because when you go out and you say these crazy things that are also very obviously true but also similar or associated with some things that are a not true and b said by people who are either actually psychotic or just have completely lost the thread it's so easy to doubt yourself and think why 
why you know like is the 15 minute city a good idea yes frankly you could argue that it was invented by ebenezer howard in the 19th century and it's a great idea is cctv cameras everywhere bad and is the government spying on you and terrible yes of of course it is and how do how do i talk to people like new york times readers who are like oh only these you know weirdo trump voters hate the 15 minute city it's such a good and reasonable idea and i just think Am I am I crazy? Because of course the 15 minute city is a good idea, but obviously opposition to some elements of it and the technocratic nature of it is so reasonable. And so I walk around now that I've switched over from my, you know, progressive liberalism of a decade ago to my anarcho communism and just think, am I wrong? Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Because all these people are smart and I respect them and they don't respect my ideas at all. I must be wrong. And then sometimes a Cory Dottero newsletter comes and I'm like, oh, thank God. There's someone else. <laughs> there's someone else in this world for whom this makes sense to. Well, look, there's nothing wrong with wondering if you're wrong, <laughs> although everything in moderation. I mean, that the opposite of never wondering if you're wrong is is always assuming you're right. <laughs> and that doesn't make you a, that that isn't a good person uh, to be either. And of course, everybody makes mistakes, including howlers and clunkers. And there, that is um, a version of, and this is what David accused Henry of doing, which I don't see in Henry's text. And certainly, given in light of Henry's uh, recent remarks, I think can't fairly be characterized as Henry's position that Henry finds a few minor factual mistakes. I think there's one about Apple in there. Yeah, that's the that's the big one. I don't one. even know which one that <laughs> it's is. It's so bad. Uh and then and then proceeds to use that to demolish or you know to discredit everything else he says. It's like it's like people who are like how can I take you seriously on this Twitter thread when you made a typo. <laughs> and and you know it's 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 you know it's absurd, right? It assumes that um the ground state of uh, smart people is perfection uh, and um, that if you if that if there's a smart person you pay attention to uh, whose mistakes you've never noticed it's because they are perfect <laughs> and not because either their mistakes are in domains that you aren't qualified to notice or because they are um, uh, supported by a giant support staff who go through and make sure that there's no mistakes in the things that they publish that are public facing so I, I, you know, there's nothing wrong with with making mistakes. All of my books have big dumb mistakes in them. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I fix them when I can, uh, but I don't worry about it too much because there's mistakes and then there's mistakes, right? Um, and then there's mistakes and then there's um, genuine remorse. So you're in South Carolina. The one time I was in South Carolina, I went to a university and I gave a talk in the Strom Thurmond Theater. <laughs> and... Uh, they, I said, the Strom Thurmond Theater, huh? And they said, don't worry, we named it after him after, right? Like when he changed his politics, when he ceased to be a segregationist, right? When he, you know, like, and we can say, okay, he's beyond the pale. His redemption was incomplete. His, the, the new enlightened views he spouted were far, far the mark or whatever, but there are different versions of people. Mm. People go through changes. Um, who's that guy who used to be a Cigna executive and is now a huge critic of medical insurance? Forgetting his name. But, you know, he's a whistleblower, basically. Yeah. But for a long time, he was a lobbyist. You know, um, these people like uh, Ed Snowden, mm. who I think of as a hero, right? <laughs> read, his, read his book. He was, uh, 
you know, hoorah, Semper Fi, multi-generational military family wanted to go overseas and kill people after 9-11 and wanted to be a special forces guy, got uh, compression fractures in both of his legs and basic and then ended up a CIA spy, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I, I think the world of Ed, but also... You know, I don't think much of those earlier choices he made. So so people can be wrong and then later be right, too. Uh, and later, you know, make good on their errors and, and sincerely regret them. Um, in terms of uh, the swivel-eyed loons having a point and the critique, I mean, I'm often in this place of agreeing with my colleagues and comrades that something is wrong or that someone is a villain and then vehemently disagreeing often on a a very technical level about what's wrong with their behavior mm. and more importantly what should be done about it so i'm right now mired in endless and frankly dispiriting debates about so-called ai uh, and what it's going to do to creative labor markets and I, I think that on the one hand the people who promote AI are bullshit artists, and it may be that the impact on creative labor markets is something that they have sold to themselves first, to the studios <laughs> and the publishers second, and third to the public. But it may not be, they may not be vendable goods, right? They may not be fit for purpose. I did today inadvertently use a large language model for the first time in a way <laughs> that um, impressed me. I, uh, I had an airline that stranded me in New York overnight and at the desk, they said, well, we don't have any vouchers, but if you get a hotel and then call the airline tomorrow, we'll reimburse you when you get home. And uh, I did. And they said, no, 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 that's not our policy. We don't reimburse you. And uh, I'm out like 400 bucks. And so, you know, I, I, I decided, OK, I'm going to take these motherfuckers to small claims court. And I Googled, um, how do you, uh, you know, how do you take an airline to small claims court? And I got this website that said, well, the first thing you need to do is write a demand letter. Would you like our help? And I was like, yeah, okay. And I clicked okay. And then it said like, well, draft a letter. And I drafted a letter. And I, I've worked for a campaigning law firm for 20 years. I've received a lot of legal threats. I'm pretty good <laughs> at writing these letters. And then I clicked go. And then it said, this may take two to three minutes. And I, you know, flipped to another tab. When I came back, there was a bowel looseningly terrifying threat letter <laughs> that some large language model had converted my very stern letter into and i think it's going to work so <laughs> you know maybe there's maybe maybe this stuff will work that's all a long-winded way of saying maybe this stuff will work at least in some domains i have yet to see anything that looks like a screenplay or a novel or a short story or an essay or a factual article um this like to be clear this letter is not good prose. <laughs> Lawyers write terribly, right? But it does read like it was written by a high-powered lawyer's $600 an hour paralegal. Uh, and um, the, the signal it sends is the author of this letter is the kind of person who will pay someone else $600 an hour to, to threaten you. So you better pay them. You better cough it up. So they, that, um, my colleagues, they're like, they're stealing our copyright. <laughs> And if we could get our, if we could enforce our copyrights, and this includes a dear friend of mine who has joined uh, Sarah Silverman's lawsuit against, uh, over ChatGPT, a copyright lawsuit against ChatGPT. And, um, and they say, if we could enforce our copyrights, then the labor impacts of this will be blunted or eliminated altogether. 
And then secondarily, I have a friend who's a visual artist who I have uh, enormous respect and affection for, who says also that not only is this bad art, that it's, um, it should be banned, Ugh. that this art shouldn't exist, right? And I think that like all of these are wrong. So first of all, I, I, I'll say that I most of the AI art I've seen, whether it's prose or visual images, I don't think much of, but uh, I would neither be surprised if in 10 years we look back on this moment and say, God, what a weird fad that was. I'm so glad it's over. Or in 10 years, we look back on this and said, God, I can't believe that this art that we all enjoy now that <laughs> is made by humans using these sophisticated tools along with their imaginations and their technical skills are making and that we all love. Much like sampling, where, you know, if you listen to early sampling, some of it's okay. A lot of it, but to, you know, contemporary ears, especially when it's tape loops, just doesn't sound very good. Um, so I don't think I, I don't think it should be that this art should be illegal. Um, I don't think it's a copyright infringement. I like as just like as a purely technical question. There really aren't any serious copyright scholars, no matter what side of the copyright debate they're on. Right. People who disagree with me about every single part of copyright agree with me <laughs> on this, which is that if first of all, ingesting a whole copyrighted work for the purposes of mathematical analysis is not under current copyright law conceivably or colorably a copyright infringement. The mere act of, of uh, mathematical analysis and the making of a transitional copy to affect that mathematical analysis, not a copyright infringement in no way. Um, wanting it badly is not enough. <laughs> it's just, just like, it's just not true. Uh, neither are, is the output of that analysis, which is the model. So every image that is ingested by, say, um, Midjourney leaves behind a single byte of data in the model. Uh, and there's just like no fair use analysis that says taking one byte from an image is a copyright infringement. Like it is, a, it is you know, I don't like to use the word insane because it's ableist, but it is batshit to say that taking one byte out of an image is a copyright infringement. It really is. Um, now there's like this special case that's come up with Getty where if you take one byte out of millions of images and those images are substantively duplicative or duplicate a single element and that byte is random, you could memorize the whole image. So if there's a Getty watermark on a million images and you ingest a million images and you take one byte out of each of them, you'll probably get all or most of a copy of a Getty watermark, even though you've only taken one byte out of each image. Um, and certainly the output could be infringing, but the, the ingestion and the retention of the process data is not a copyright infringement, which raises this question, should it be? Because of course, no one came down, down off a mount with two stone tablets and said, here's your copyright hmm. law. Like it was made in, re you know, the current draft is like 1998, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Before that, it was 1976. Like the people who wrote it are alive. They're not distant Old, old uh, Testament prophets, right? They're just like dudes, you know, and women. And so we could, some, some different dudes and women could write a different copyright law. And so the question is, if we said, creators should have the exclusive bargainable right to decide who can train a model with their work, would it protect the labor interests of creators? And I think here again, the answer is no. If you say to say voice artists, you have the right to decide who can train a model with your voice, right? Um, we know what would happen because it's already happening because the major employer of voice artists is um, games. And most game studios have already amend amended their standard deal so that when you sit down 
for a recording session, the first words out of your mouth are, my name is Corey Doctorow, and I hereby assign <laughs> any rights to this voice session for use in training machine learning models. And if you don't like it, you can fuck off, and they will hire someone else who will. Now, a union could do something about that, but it doesn't matter if you have the right or not, right? The union, if the union has the power to... Um, have its members refuse to assign a right, they also have the power to force its employer not to do the thing irrespective of whether they have the right. And if creators don't have the right, then non-union creators can't assign it in sufficient quantity where they lack the bargaining power to dominant firms such that those dominant firms can fire all their workers anyway. Uh, and so I, I think that like actors, writers, voice actors, illustrators, photographers, if we give them the right to decide who can train a model with their work, that right will be expropriated from a sufficiently large proportion of them that the thing that they are worried about and that this is supposed to prevent will come true. And what that means is that all their asses will get fired. Corporations will make as much art as they want using AI, assuming there's a commercial appetite for it. We don't know. Um, and... Uh, kids making weird shit on the internet will be criminals, right? Like this is not like, this is a thing that makes every artist worse off and makes the people who want to exploit artists better off. And there are, you know, we went through this. This is how sampling works, right? Because sampling didn't used to require copyright license. Now it does. We didn't change the law, but there was like a couple of lawsuits and then there was a change in practice. And if you want to sample, you've got to um, sign to one of the big three labels. Uh, because they have all the catalog. They have 70% of the catalog between them, Sony, Warner, Universal. And that deal, the standard deal that you have to sign in order to take a, a sample requires you to give up the right to control your own samples, right? You transfer it to them, which means that every artist who wants to sample takes some money that would otherwise go to an artist and pay for groceries and gives it back to a record label to pay for shareholder dividends and executive bonuses. So we've made that artist worse off. We have not made the artist whose work is being sampled better off. We've taken the work that that artist paid to make and we've put it inside a... Uh, a box that the labels in this, uh, uh, own, which means that other artists are going to be uh, higher. Uh, it's going to be harder for them to make work without also falling into this trap. So we've created bait for a trap. And then we've taken all the art that used to exist and we made it impossible to clear. So De La Salle's work was never cleared for sampling 15 years, or De La Soul rather, 15 years when it wasn't available at all on streaming because they couldn't clear the samples. And when it was finally cleared and came up in March, it was too late because the front man died in February. Mm. Right. Like we didn't make that artist better off. And not only that, but like you couldn't make that music again today. If you wanted to replicate It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy or Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys today, every CD would have to sell for one hundred and fifty dollars to pay for the sampling license. And none of that money would go to an artist to just go to a label. Right. And so nobody is going to buy a CD for $150, right? And so that means that that music just doesn't get made. So we also managed to make an entire genre of music illegal. So we made a genre <laughs> of music illegal. We made every artist who wants to sample poorer. We made every artist who wants to sample uh, non-consensually give up their work to bait other artists into becoming poorer. Um, and we took a whole corpus of music that was artistically important and we disappeared it for a decade and a half, right? Like, that is not a good outcome for anyone except for the shareholders, the major labels, and it is not a pro-labor policy. And so that takes a long time to explain, <laughs> as you've just heard, right? We should have the right to, to own the, we should have, we should have the right to control our art 
sounds yeah. like a good labor pitch, but the technical reality of how this works, understanding what goes into a model, understanding that it's one byte retained, understanding that the primary beneficiary of the copyright limitations and exceptions that allow for trans transitory copies and um, uh, analysis are scholars, researchers, uh, everyday people, like the whole field of computational linguistics, which is the field that Emily Bender, one of the best critics of LLMs, is in, and who a lot of whose defenders are also saying LLM shouldn't be allowed to scrape text. That field only exists because of scraping text. In fact, for the first time in human history, we are systematically exploring conversational speech. Because it used to be that to explore conversational speech, you had to record people conversing and then pay a grad student to transcribe them. It was impossible. No one had big corpuses. This work that we have on things like um, African-American vernacular English's uh, uh, grammar and how it exists and how it's changed over the years and its sophistication and internal consistency, its relationship to other languages and so on, all of that comes out of computational linguistics, right? Uh, like they, these are hugely beneficial uh areas of scholarship and inquiry that we would just just like they would be collateral damage they would just be annihilated in this rush to give artists rights that they still wouldn't enjoy and that still wouldn't deliver what they want and so it's possible for people who agree with you to be right about some stuff <laughs> and wrong about the particulars and this is an area where like People who have lived experience and technical knowledge need to be included in the debate, right? It, it, it's where, if you care about disability rights as I do, it's why you shouldn't ever sound off about them without talking to a person who has the disability you're thinking about, right? It, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are. There are technical aspects, right? Not, you know, leaving aside the lived experience, technical aspects of that that you just don't appreciate. Um, if you are concerned with homelessness and you don't talk to homeless people and you just sit in your study as the economists do and say, if I were a horse, what would I do? If I were homeless, how would I become homeless? What would keep me homeless? And so on. You will conceive of solutions that are uncoupled from the uh, actual underlying need. And, and so, yeah, these debates need to be technically informed. Uh, and um, it's possible for smart people to disagree with you not because they're not smart but because they lack the specific domain knowledge and either the humility or self-awareness to understand that lack which is a thing that all of us are guilty of to some degree or another including david <laughs> and me and you <laughs> yes the only thing i want to add to that is the other thing is sometimes they lack the imaginary they can't imagine sure. A world yep. without copyright. Um, so we, you know, we talked a little bit about UBI versus uh, a jobs guarantee last time, and I realized mm -hmm. working through debt that the third chapter is called the myth of primordial debt, and Graver says that's the idea that we all owe society for being born, and he doesn't quite make the link, but as near as I can tell, this is his attack on the jobs guarantee. It's the sort of idea that like since you're born you owe us and you owe us things like you know dealing with climate change or that sort of thing and he wants us just such a more radical and dare i say anarchistic thing mm -hmm. and it does seem like this is the place where people didn't seem to really focus on this part 
because if you're a democratic mm-hmm. socialist, you can really like Graeber, but you can't really like this part because this is the like anti-democratic right. socialist. I, d- I didn't bring this up with Kim Stanley Robinson, but I think you know he would be pretty like this is this is the place where the left, the the main mainstream left, whatever you know, the mainstream radical left diverges from anarchism. And reading that, I just realized I think that's like like that's the point of sure. disagreement that you and I had very. Very briefly. Yeah. I think that's it's it. It's the last thing David and I argued about uh, t- that on our last live stream together. This was the debate we had was on, on UBI and on uh, jobs guarantees. And, you know, it's without getting into the whole thing, yeah. I will make I one d- more I don't want you to have then, to. I just, just yeah. you can speak briefly okay. and then we can so, get out of here. here. So jobs guarantee is a thing closely associated with the modern monetary theory school. Uh, and modern monetary theory is grounded in the key insight of debt, which is that money is created by states uh, for the, and that it is inextricably linked with taxation, and that the value of money comes from having a non-discretionary liability that must be settled in a given mm-hmm. token, right? And um, one of the ways of thinking about that is to say that if all money starts with government spending, and there are people who are involuntarily unemployed. That unemployment is basically the inability to get the token the government uh, wants you to remit to it. That's that's just yes. that's that's all unemployment Absolutely. is, right? In the world of the the hut tax under the under British colonial rule, if you have to remit a certain number of whatever it is shillings every year, or they come and burn down your hut, uh, and the only way you get those shillings is by tapping rubber. But they don't pay enough rubber tappers to generate enough shillings to save every hut that's that's their problem right like they made that mm-hmm. problem that those people are unemployed because they weren't given jobs and they can be given jobs because the british colonial authority does not lack for shillings <laughs> right in the same way that like uh, apple doesn't lack for itunes gift certificates or starbucks doesn't lack for starbucks coupons right like you and i have a completely different relationship to money than sovereign currency issuers do for them, it's a way of keeping score. For us, it's a way of uh, exchanging and retaining value, right? A medium of exchange, medium account, store of value. And um, the jobs guarantee says, look, if the government made you unemployed, it owes you a job. Uh, and note that the jobs guarantee is not a jobs requirement, right? It's not a, it's, it does not work for benefits. What it is, is the idea that if states are... Uh, institutions that we convene for the purpose of coordinating the work of people, uh, as any institution is per Robert Coase, right? All institutions exist to lower coordination costs and let two or more people work together to do something that transcends the abilities of any one of them on their own. Um, Then uh, the state that exists, however it is conceived of, um, should be uh, is better when people who want to work have jobs that are suited to their proclivities. So the jobs guarantee, you know, Pavlina Cherneva's conception of the jobs guarantee, and she's the you know foremost progenitor. She's at um, SUNY, Stony, SUNY Stony Brook, I think, uh, is... Um, is that, you know, it's federally funded, but it's locally administered. It's like basically... It's like the it's like the high school I went to, <laughs> where you show up and you tell them what kind of courses you want to take, and if those courses don't exist, you just design them. If they're not in the curriculum, you just design them. And you know, at my high school where I met Possum and he wore a sweater backwards, 
you know, if you wanted to study something that wasn't in the Ontario curriculum, you could write a rigorous syllabus for it. You could find people in the community who would teach it to you. And then one of the teachers in the school, there were only six teachers in this little alternative school, would write up um, a narrative. We call it, The school was called Seed School, Self-Exploration, <laughs> Education, and Discovery. It was founded in 1968. Uh, as you know, Toronto School District was trying to bring back students who dropped out. And so they said, just like, here's a room. Like, you don't have to have any teachers. And you don't have to do anything. But like, stop smoking weed in Yorkville, which was like the Haight-Ashbury of, of Toronto. And just like, just like be indoors for a while. And then it kind of mutated into the school that I, I graduated from. And these teachers would write up your accomplishments in a seed equivalent credit and then you would just like if you ever needed a credit for something right you needed to get into university or demonstrate that you had a skill that was your assessment right that was your piece of paper and you can think of the jobs guarantee as being related to this right the jobs guarantee is like if there's a job you want and you want to support yourself doing it at a socially inclusive wage that includes benefits vacations and all the other things that we want people to have as a core element of their work then you show up you work with the people in your community to figure out what needs to be done that you want to do and how it should be done and then that job is your job at your socially inclusive wage right and like i don't think that's as much of a democratic socialist story as people take it for for one thing people think it's workfare yeah and it could turn into workfare and that would be ghastly but it's not workfare Right? It is a program entirely separate from a system of social benefits, medical leave, parental leave, disability payments, um, old age payments, all of those things. Completely separate from that. It's like you want a job, there should always be a job for you, and that job should be one that you want to do. That feels pretty anarchist to me. Yeah, I, I agree that it feels pretty anarchist, and it's clear that Graver still found it to be too enmeshed in in something that he didn't want any any part of and he's just he's not around for us to ask him again. Well, well, and I think a lot of people uh either think that proponents of the jobs guarantee are lying or that they're naive about the slippery slope. Yeah, fair enough. Look, I'm I'm going to let you go okay. at this point. I would keep talking, right. but you've got to go. Corey, thank you so much for yep. coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. All right. Good night. Thank you once again to Corey Doctorow, who came back on the show to talk about Graeber again. And ugh, we ran out of time. We didn't get to delve into this jobs guarantee versus universal basic income thing even further. It just seems like Corey and I are going to have to talk about this again. But what is coming up next in the first week of November is my discussion of the third chapter of debt, which is about the myth of primordial debt, which is where I will go much more into detail in Graeber's theory of why something like a jobs guarantee is not anarchist, is a form of unfreedom, we could say. Although I will also say the way Dr. O describes the jobs guarantee is indeed quite anarchist. He convinced me, and it makes sense, um, that that version of jobs guarantee is quite compatible with the library socialism that you hear about on the Seriously Wrong podcast. Again, maybe I'll take this up again with Cory Dottrow. Maybe I'll take it up again with the Wrong Boys. That's going to be a topic for another day. 
but a topic in just a couple of weeks is Chapter 3 of Graber's Debt. I hope you're enjoying the series. The music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.